0: Welcome everybody to the Snark Nights podcast, a show where we're talking about comic book movies. I'm your co-host, Snark Knight Luke, and with me...
1: J.J. J. I like that one. Yeah, it really rolls off the tongue. Can you pull off the mustache? Um, more of a beard guy. <laughs> eh, it looks good on you. It's also a Hitler mustache, pretty much, so... I think I'm okay. <laughs> well, it it's like gray, except for the Hitler part. It's really weird. Yeah.
0: So after we've recorded our last episode for Superman Returns, I was at this secondhand toy shop and I was talking to the owners, you know, just shooting the shit a little. And normally I don't like just telling people, hey, I have a podcast. But that's but how it, you get girls. Oh, yeah. I am pulling. Ugh, I'm so lonely. Anyways. <laughs> so, we were digging through toys, and it just came up in conversation. Hey, I have a podcast, and this is what it's about. And in these toys, there was a action figure from Superman Returns. And I just said, you know, hey, what a coincidence. We just recorded our episode for Superman Returns. And one of the people I was talking to said, oh, I hope you give it the respect it deserves. And... Sarcastically? No. 100% Aww. honest. I froze before I recovered it. I said, I think we gave it a fair shake. Uh, I mean, I did. I know you hated it. Well, I don't like it, but I think from an opinion perspective, we give everything a fair shake.
1: Or at least we try to. Yeah, that's fair. We try to find the silver lining, even on the shittiest cloud. <laughs>
0: And we succeed, for the most part. Hopefully, this time round we won't have that
1: big of a problem, as we dive into 2002's Spider-Man. Spider-Man was created by Steve Ditko and Stan Lee. The character first appeared in 1962's Amazing Fantasy, issue number 15. And the
0: film is directed by Sam Raimi. Yeah. And stars, yeah, God, it's such a Raimi movie. And stars Toby McGuire, Willem Dafoe, Kirsten Dunst, James Franco, Cliff Robertson, Rosemary Harris, J.K. Simmons, Joe Maganello, Bill Nunn, and featuring a lot of other people like Bruce Campbell, Ted Ramey, Elizabeth Banks, and Macho Man Randy Savage.
1: And don't forget Octavia Spencer in a bit role. Yeah, I completely forgot she was
0: in this. Oh, Aunt Jim Norton and Lucy Lawless.
1: Yeah, they get uh, little cameos. Yeah. One is a Spidey fan, and one is a uh, critic, to put it nicely. That's
0: a good way to frame it.
1: So it's been a while since this movie came out. Do you want to refresh everyone on uh, what happens?
0: I sure do. Our tale begins with narrator Peter Parker asking us, Do you want to know who I am? Why, yes, we do, Peter. That's why we're here. 27-year-old high school student Peter Parker (laughs) runs after a bus, establishing firmly his pecking order in his world as a nerd even disliked by other nerds. The bus is delivering students to a science lab for a field trip, where we also meet Peter's best friend, Harry Osborne, being dropped off by his father, Norman Osborne, a millionaire scientist and head of the research and development company Oscorp. High school bully Flash Thompson and his cronies pick on Peter continuously as they are walked through the least controlled lab environment on the eastern (laughs) seaboard. Here, they are studying genetically modified spiders. Eventually, Peter is left alone with the girl of his dreams, Mary Jane Watson, aka MJ, and takes pictures of her next to some of the spiders for the school paper. As she runs off to join her friends, a spider lowers down on a web and bites Peter in the hand. Peter heads home, where his Aunt May and Uncle Ben are being an absolutely charming couple. Peter, though, is looking and feeling awful, so he curls up in his room and passes out. Meanwhile at Oscorp, several military personnel and Oscorp board members are gathered to discuss their current military contract. If Osborne can't deliver a positive human test result of the promised super soldier formula, the company will lose said contract. Desperate, that night Osborne tests the formula on himself with the help of his chief researcher, Dr. Strom. It does not go well as Norman goes into cardiac arrest. Dr. Strom succeeds at reviving Norman, who is now in a psychotic state, and throws Dr. Strom through a window, killing him. Peter wakes up to find himself no longer needing glasses and physically jacked. God, I'm so jealous. (laughs) He looks so good.
1: I mean, more that he can see, but yeah. Oh, without glasses, (laughs) we took that. Two speaking as two people with pretty bad vision, I feel like we would both take that. Yeah. Sorry. Go
0: ahead.
1: (laughs) At school, his transformation
0: reveals several other changes including heightened reflexes, senses, and the ability to shoot webbing from his wrists. The latter results in him accidentally throwing a plate of food at Flash, leading to a fight between the two, which Peter surprisingly wins easily. Freaked out, Peter runs off to try and calm down and figure out what is happening to him. He quickly puts two and two together, realizing all of these things are similar to what spiders can do, and soon he is climbing walls and leaping from building to building, testing himself. That night, Peter and MJ, who is apparently his neighbor, have a bit of a heart-to-heart in the backyard for a bit before her boyfriend Flash shows up in a new car. Naturally, this leads Peter to assume getting a car in New York will help solve his problems. Looking through the paper, he stumbles upon an ad for wrestlers, offering good money for colorful characters, and Peter sets to designing himself a costume. In the morning, Uncle Ben drives Peter into town and drops the ultimate hero credo on him. With great power comes great responsibility. Peter, being a teenager, lashes out at his uncle and leaves to earn his money as the human spider! That name is quickly corrected by one Quinted Beck, and Spider-Man easily dispatches Saw McGraw, who it seems was not as ready as he thought he was. <laughs> the wrestling booker only gives Peter $100 because the match went short and proceeds to be an unrepentant dick. A man with a gun bursts into the office, stealing the money and running by Peter, who, as an act of revenge, does nothing to stop the thief. But this origin story ain't done just yet, as out on the street, Peter finds his Uncle Ben shot in a carjacking. Ben dies in front of the boy, who overhears the location of the car with police in pursuit. He masks up and takes off, web-swinging to catch up to the car. It crashes and the thief escapes into a warehouse. There, Peter realizes it is the same man he let go just minutes before, and that failing to heed his uncle's words led to Ben's death. The man pulls a gun and gets a broken hand for his trouble, then stumbles backwards and out a window, falling to his death as a guilt-stricken Peter watches. And origin complete. That same night across town, Oscorp's rivals are testing an exoskeleton for the military brass that apparently hates Norman Osborn. The test is interrupted by Norman, now all hopped up on Ozgas, flying in on a combat glider and green flight suit designed by his company, with a custom-made mask that makes him look like a goblin. This possibly alliteratively named menace blows up everything and everyone while laughing, because it's important to love what you do. Peter graduates high school after an undisclosed amount of time, and his uncle not being there makes him truly realize he can no longer sit by. He moves to the city with Harry, and starts his career as the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. But being everyone's favorite wall crawler does not pay the bills, and as Peter is out looking for work, he runs into MJ and learns that she has been dating Harry. What will help pay the bills, though, is something Peter is in a unique position to provide. Pictures of Spider-Man wanted by the Daily Bugle and its head honcho, J. Jonah Jameson. After delivering some truly impossible to get unless you are Spider-Man pictures, Peter now has a career. Things seem to be going good for Norman Osborn as well, with Oscorp winning their military contract. But instead of celebrating, the entire board decides they'd rather sell the company and force Norman out. Later, the board members are gathered at the World's Unity Fair, where the Green Goblin shows up again and wreaks havoc throwing around explosives and what appears to be a miniature neutron bomb that turns all the board members into skeletons in a flash. Peter quickly changes into his costume, going toe-to-toe with the Goblin for the first time. MJ, having been up on a VIP balcony with Harry, falls just as the Goblin makes his escape, and Spider-Man swings down and saves her. At home, Norman is panicking as he realizes he's been having blackouts, but soon comes face to face with literally himself in a mirror, where his Oz-infected psyche brings to light all that Norman could do with this newfound power. All he needs to do is stop Spider-Man. Jameson officially names the new villain the Green Goblin. No sooner does he have a name that the Goblin shows up and attacks Jameson, demanding to know who takes the pictures of Spider-Man which does mean the paper is publishing photos without providing credits. Anyways, good old Webhead shows up to save Jameson, but Green Goblin gasses Spider-Man and carries him off. Spider-Man awakes on a roof, but finds his body still paralyzed. The Goblin offers a team-up to commence taking over the world, pointing out that the one thing people like more than a hero is to watch that hero fall. One might say... For him to live long enough to become a villain. Green Goblin gives Spider-Man time to think it over, and the following night, Peter heads out to support MJ at an audition. They talk, and MJ heads off to meet Harry for dinner. Peter spots some shady men head off to follow her just as a storm starts up. They corner her, and she does her best to fight them off, but it is an uphill battle until Spider-Man shows up and saves her. They have a heart to heart and they share a passionate kiss before Spider Man takes off. The next morning, a building burns. The police show up to arrest the webhead, but they hear a woman screaming from the upper floors where the firefighters can't get to safely. So Spider Man heads in, but the woman winds up being the Green Goblin. They fight, and the wall crawler escapes after receiving a cut on his forearm. Apparently, it's Thanksgiving. As Norman arrives to Peter and Harry's apartment for a turkey day meal, Peter gets there late and everyone sits to eat. Norman sees the cut on Peter's forearm that is the exact same one that the goblin gave Spider-Man. Norman takes off, shit-talking Mary Jane to Harry as he leaves. The knowledge that Peter is Spider-Man is torturous to Norman. He begs his goblin mask to guide him, and it instructs Norman in the ways of war. Go for the heart. As Aunt May says her nightly prayers, the green goblin blows open her bedroom wall, terrifying the elderly woman. Peter rushes to the hospital to find Aunt May in shock. Parker realizes the goblin knows who he really is and decides to remain at Aunt May's side to keep her safe. MJ comes by to visit, and she confesses that she is in love with Spider Man. Peter confesses how he feels about Mary Jane, and she reaches over and holds Peter's hand just as Harry comes into the room, and because apparently this takes place in the Boy Meets World universe, two people holding hands while talking is tantamount to making out because Harry runs home to confess to his father that MJ and Peter are in love. Peter realizes that MJ could also be in trouble, so he goes to call her, only to have the goblin answer. At the Brooklyn Bridge, the Goblin is getting ready for the final showdown. Spider-Man arrives to find the Goblin on top of the bridge with a choice for the wall crawler. He can either save Mary Jane or a cable car filled with children. The Goblin drops both at the same time and Spider-Man actually saves them both with relative ease. The Green Goblin begins flying by and punching Spider-Man, who is webbed to the bridge with one hand and hanging on to the cable car with the other. A boat moves beneath them so Spider-Man could set down the car, now with Mary Jane on it, just as the Goblin lassos Spider-Man, flying them to an abandoned old brick building. The Green Goblin is beating the tar out of our hero, but mentions going back to torture Mary Jane, which unintentionally inspires Peter to step up his game, leading him to dropping an entire brick wall onto the Goblin. Seeing his end near, the goblin removes his helmet, and Osborne begs Peter for help, stating that he loves Peter like a son. With utter indifference, the goblin hits a button, calling his glider to him. But Peter's spider senses give warning, and he jumps out of the way. The blades of the glider smash deep into Norman's lower abdomen, killing him as he asks Peter to not tell Harry what happened. Peter apparently strips Norman down and returns him home, where Harry catches them and assumes Spider-Man killed his father. At the funeral, Harry swears vengeance on Spider-Man to Peter, and Peter just lets that slide because why start having a healthy relationship now? Peter goes to visit Uncle Ben's grave, and MJ goes after to confess that she has realized she loves him. Peter, realizing that anyone he cares about, could be a target for any future villains that learn his identity, tells MJ that they can never be more than just friends, and walks away as Mary Jane realizes he is Spider-Man. As Peter swings over the city he loves, he ponders further over his uncle's words, anyone can wear the mask. I mean, with great power comes great responsibility.
1: What a beautiful story. It is quite lovely. Minus all the deaths. There's a lot of death. Do you, perchance,
0: have a more succinct
1: version of that? Yeah, so when we did Spider-Man 3, the the conclusion (laughs) of this particular stretch of the Spider-Man franchise, for my short synopsis, I sang a little song, and, uh...
0: Which was very impromptu on your part.
1: Yeah, it's not like I took two days to write the lyrics summarizing the movie. To the tune of the Spider-Man theme song from the cartoon. Uh, I struggled to think of how I could top that for this short synopsis, and I thought, I'll just do the same thing. So here we go. Peter Parker, Peter Parker, even nerdier than us snarkers. Has one friend otherwise despised. He's invisible in Mary Jane's eyes. Look out! Here comes the Spider-Man. Cause he got bit, listen bud. He knocked down Bonesaw with a thud. Will the powers go (coughs) to his head? Probably not now that Uncle Ben's dead. Hey there, there goes the (laughs) Spider-Man. In the chill of night, at the scene of a crime, the military-industrial complex is the real villain this time. (laughs) Spider-Man, Spider-Man, Sam Raimi's neighborhood Spider-Man. J.J. Jameson, he's assured, we'll give him a job as a reward. In the end, Green Goblin gets all stabbed up. Harry's an orphan now too. yep, and then they made two more Spider-Mans. <laughs>
0: Fantastic.
1: Sorry, I'm not a better singer, but I'm an alright songwriter. You did
0: great. You got the pacing of that down wonderfully.
1: I've listened to that theme song on YouTube probably 200 times between Spider-Man 3 and this.
0: You don't just have the Ramones version stuck in your head at all times?
1: Unfortunately, no. Oh. That would be a stretch for my vocal range anyway.
0: Eh. So.
1: Spider-Man.
0: Yeah. Opens with narration. I really enjoy.
1: Like any good story, this
0: one's all about a girl.
1: Yeah, that was cute. It's charming. And it leads into the uh, setup of him being the outcast, nerd, pariah of his high school. Where everyone's apparently 30 years old. (laughs) <laughs> I know that's standard Hollywood casting for high school kids, but yeah. it's like they didn't even try for this one.
0: Yeah, it's. I'm pretty sure that's why they don't stick around in high school long. Also, no one waves to their friends like Mary Jane waves at hers when Peter, like has happened to everybody at least once in their life, assumes she is waving at him. That was just a
1: social nightmare. I'm glad she didn't notice that he was waving because the only thing worse than that is when they notice you're doing it. Yeah. So then Harry and Norman roll up in a Rolls Royce, which embarrasses Harry. I guess he, like Peter, missed the bus. But (laughs) uh, I'll have more to say about Willem Dafoe later. I just want to say the line delivery when he meets Peter is amazing. Harry tells tells me you're quite the science whiz. Then he pauses and smiles and he's like, you know, I'm something of a scientist myself. It's so good.
0: He's so charming.
1: Yeah, but he's also he's, he's like kind of unsettling. He has this rare ability to play normal people in such under-the-skin, piercing ways. And granted, obviously, his, his character here takes a villainous turn, but he's not foreshadowing. It's just, he just plays Norman so weirdly. It's basically just Willem Dafoe. That's the character. <laughs> he's so good.
0: Yeah, and I do find it weird that this is the first time Norman is meeting Peter.
1: His son's best friend. He's a busy
0: guy, but still. Yeah, it's one of two odd friendship choices. We will get to the other one shortly. As now we are heading into the least controlled environment lab we have ever seen on this show. Wake the fuck up, Columbia
1: University Science Department.
0: Uh, For anybody who hasn't seen this, if you've been to a museum, typically there's like an atrium central area that leads off to all of the different sections of the museum. So if you could picture that sort of setup, right there in the middle of everything is where this lab is. It it is absolutely an open air environment.
1: Shouldn't the spiders be in a separate room entirely? But then we wouldn't have the Spider-Man. So, I do like that scene, though, where the field trip goes through the room and they learn about all the different spiders. Because it's such a fantastic exposition tool for Spider Man's powers.
0: Oh, it's beautiful. They threw
1: that in really organically.
0: Yeah. I appreciate that they named a bunch of different spider abilities, but Peter didn't get all of those. Right. Then they named a couple others, like the camouflage and. Actually, the camouflage, I think, is the only one, but he didn't mm-hmm. get camouflage, so.
1: Yeah, it wasn't all on the nose. And to follow up what I was saying about Wilm DeVoe, speaking of great line delivery, their world-weary high school teacher who leads the field trip did such a great job with every line he had. This is just he is a very forgettable solid. character if it wasn't for him. He's such a standout. I would look it up, but well done to Shan Omar Huey, who plays the unfortunately unnamed science teacher.
0: He is so good.
1: Yeah. I also like that all of the kids are afraid of him, even though he's like easily a foot shorter than all of these alleged high school students.
0: It's really good. Then we get the infamous spider bite.
1: Basically, the Columbia lab that's working on these spiders for science reasons, they combine the DNA of different spiders into super spiders, and one of them escapes its little containment chamber and bites Peter on its hand while he's taking pictures of Mary Jane.
0: And we don't get to see the immediate effect of it, but we do cut over to Ben and May Parker, who are a delight.
1: Yeah, really everyone who sees this movie would be happy to have them as an aunt and uncle. Absolutely. And this movie is just generally, aside from them, it has perfect casting for supporting roles. J.K. Simmons is the most obvious example because no one yeah. will ever be J.J. Jameson as hard as J.K. Simmons is. But Willem yeah, Dafoe, Cliff Robertson, Rosemary Harris... Just all impeccably cast. Bruce Campbell, born to be a wrestling announcer. (laughs) And uh, on that note, in a smaller yet perhaps even more perfectly cast sporting role, Randy Macho Man Savage as Bonesaw could not have been better cast.
0: It's really hard for me to talk about that character and not do my Macho Man imitation. When I was saying his name in the credit roll through, I held out as long as I could to just say Macho Man Randy Savage normally,
1: and I couldn't do it. It sounds wrong when you say it normally. Right? Whoever cast this movie, bravo. You're the real hero. The real (laughs) Spider-Man. And not that it matters, really, in the grand scheme of things, uh, movie-wise, but the fact that Willem Dafoe and James Franco actually look like they could be related, it's a nice touch.
0: Yeah. When you go back and look at especially the older comics... They're both drawn with the exact same hair.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a weird haircut. It's
0: a really weird design, and it makes giving it to both of them really stand out. And in this movie, it looks like they have the exact same hair.
1: Although the hair is a lot more normal looking than their OG comic hair.
0: Oh, I don't think their OG comic hair is physically possible.
1: No, you should post a picture of it to our Twitter later. It's just so fucking weird, like distractingly <laughs> weird. So distracting that it got me off on a tangent. <laughs> uh, so Peter gets home after being bitten by the super spider and he's all sweaty and a little out of it. And then he goes up to his room, lies down on the floor, and then goes through his transformation. Uh, the transformation basically being a sequence of images, uh, special effects, and voiceover that's just trademark Sam Raimi. Yes. Something out of Darkman. It's the type of stuff that Raimi has been doing for years before he did Spider-Man. And it's so fun to watch him do the same stuff with a budget. Yes, this is classic Sam Raimi.
0: Him passing out. There's flashing lights and quick cuts and staticky
1: sounds. It's creepy. Little CGI amygdala brain stuff sequences. DNA yeah. literally getting swapped out for spider DNA. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, that scene drove my brother crazy.
1: Until he gets bitten by a genetically altered spider. What does he know? <laughs> True.
0: And... We also follow Norman to his place of work, Osgore. And I don't know why everyone hates Norman Osborn.
1: Right. And I also find it hard to believe that Norman and his company are as successful as they seem to be. Because they make it seem like potentially losing one government contract is the be-all, end-all of their corporate well-being. Like, surely he and the company have some other irons in the fire. Yeah, you would think.
0: Everything about why nobody likes Norman and that whole corporate structure doesn't really make
1: sense. Yeah, he's a pleasant guy. Why does everyone hate him? Yeah. It is also funny that the board hates him as much as they do, because Norman Osborn is clearly a total genius as a scientist, but he's an absolute dumbass businessman. He's the founder of the company, but he has no control or influence over his board of directors. Like, they unanimously agree to sell his company... And then have him resign without telling him beforehand.
0: And they're showing absolute contempt for him as they do it.
1: A man who, again, is a genius scientist and responsible for any success that this company's having. And they just treat him like a schmuck.
0: Even weirder is when we're first meeting the military brass and they're discussing the test results on lab rats about the Oz formula. They say there was one test subject that was displaying psychosis and they imply that the military would say, well, that's too much. We can't approve this if there's one bad test subject.
1: Uh, Tuskegee Airmen called and they would like an apology. (laughs)
0: Yeah. And moving back to Peter as he wakes up and starts displaying things that we have established we are envious of.
1: Yeah. People ask if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you pick? And normally I'd say flight or something, but I would definitely go with twenty twenty vision after rewatching this.
0: <laughs> so yeah, at school we start finding more of his powers as he catches Mary Jane as she trips and he does a old school flash not Flash Thompson, but DC's the Flash first appearance of catching everything that she threw in the air off of her plate.
1: Yeah, and immaculately reassembling her tray for her as everything falls back to the ground. And she doesn't bat an eye. She just says, good reflexes or something. Yeah. She has a very high bar for being impressed, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, you would think that would garner a lot more of a reaction, but... Eh. And I think this is a good time to talk about organic web shooters.
1: Yeah, so... Because this uh, movie has him shooting the web out of little skin pouches in his wrists that just organically appear, I, like many other people, assume that that's how Spidey's web works. But years later, I found out that that is not the case.
0: Yeah, so there was a big uproar about it, because in the comics, what he does is, because he is a massive nerd, he goes home and designs web shooters, like a bracelet with a trigger that runs up onto his palm and then cartridges filled with a web fluid that he designed himself. Now, Sam Raimi, understandably, decided that having him design all that stuff would make Peter a little
1: unrelatable because it's
0: just a little
1: too smart. And I get that. It's also a lot of, uh... It was just be extra footage and extra explanation in a movie that's trying to keep things pretty simple and tight to then have him set up a lab and build a bunch of stuff. Plus Sam Raimi likes body horror, so it makes sense to have little (laughs) wrist pouches. True.
0: The only bad thing I think actually came out of the organic web shooters is that they then tried to force organic web shooters into the comics, which resulted in some of the worst Spider-Man stories ever. So bad that no story since then... Ever references those moments oh
1: so they didn't even go back and forth they just tried it the one time yep oh yeah spider-man gave birth to himself
0: fuck yeah he turns into a giant spider the spider dies and then human peter comes out of that spider with organic web
1: shooters there have to be like a dozen different ways to do that better <laughs> that would make more sense but okay sure yeah
0: Yeah, it wasn't good, and it's all because of this movie.
1: When you said that it ruined the comics, I was thinking, how could them introducing organic web shooters possibly (laughs) ruin the comics? But yeah, that, that would do it. That's stupid. Yep. Okay, so let's get
0: back to school. So the organic web shooters result in Peter accidentally flinging a tray of food at Flash Thompson. And then Flash Thompson chases Peter down to start a fight. And you get to see some cool camera tricks to emphasize Peter's spider senses
1: and reflexes and things like that as they fight. Peter sees every punch coming and dodges out of the way. Yeah. Sam Raimi wasn't thrilled about having to do more CGI than he usually does because he's a big effects guy. Um, So that was cool because he got to do his thing. Mm -hmm. And that leads to Peter playing with his powers more
0: as he runs out and he's, jumping across buildings until he reaches one that doesn't have a building directly across from it. He decides to have fun and try to figure out how his web shooters work.
1: He uh, assumes it's catchphrase based for a while. (laughs) It's not the case. Yeah. It's also nice to know that canonically the DC universe exists in this Spider-Man universe. Because Peter, as he's trying to figure out how to shoot his web, he says, Up, up, and away, web, and shazam! And also later Aunt May references uh, Superman. Yeah. Fun shout-out to DC. Mm-hmm. Marvel doesn't really return the favor too often. but
0: <laughs> I think Marvel's doing fine right now. Um, I mentioned earlier weird friendship tracks, and now is when we find out that Peter and Mary Jane have been neighbors since they were six.
1: Yeah. But they aren't friends. That whole relationship is just oddly framed because... Like you just pointed out, it seems like they're friends at certain points in the movie. But the first few times we see them together, it's like she barely knows him. Like she's aware of him, but but she doesn't really go out of her way to interact with him. But then later in the movie, they have conversations where it seems like they regularly hang out and uh, share things with each other. That was like the one weird misstep in that relationship. I think that they didn't really gauge what level of closeness that these characters were supposed to have. And they just tried to have it both ways. So it makes it weird... Because later, when they're having those nice heart-to-heart moments, it's just like, Mm -hmm. how did they get to this point? When earlier in the movie, she barely acknowledges them. Yeah, it's, if they weren't neighbors, fine. But neighbors since they were
0: six. Right. It's a cute conversation that they have. Like, just genuinely nice. I like how it ends when she says, you're taller than you look. And Peter just says, I hunch. That was cute. It's a nice scene. That ends with Pete being a goober who thinks getting a car will fix his problems.
1: And in New York City, of all places, the most (laughs) impractical city in the world to own a car. Yeah, I get that he's in the burbs, but you can only take that so far. But then we have an excuse for Peter to try out wrestling. Yes, in this world, wrestling is real.
0: And then I remembered... In the comics, it was the same thing. I just thought it was weird, especially when saw was going to hit Peter with a fucking crowbar. Because if it were fake, it wouldn't really work. Or, hold on, as a wrestling fan, I'm going to back up that one. If it weren't choreographed, everything wouldn't work the way that the story
1: needs it to. Right, and it 100% is just not choreographed. Yeah. also wanted to point out, uh, this movie is 17 years old now, and times have changed. Just not very nice of Peter during the match to make a homophobic remark at Bonesaw. Different times and all, but not cool, Spidey.
0: Yeah, it could have been worse. The comment you are referencing is, Peter's looking down at Bonesaw, and he says, That's a nice costume. Did your husband make it for you? Even if you don't believe in something, if you really want to stick it to a bigot, you use their own beliefs
1: against them. You don't know that Bonesaw's a homophobe, though. He can be a very tolerant person. (laughs) I'm just saying. Randy, tolerant man (laughs) savage. So yeah, um,
0: I mentioned in my synopsis that we talked about it in
1: Spider-Man 3 that Bruce Campbell is here.
0: Probably as Quentin Beck.
1: I think they later recanonized it as Quentin Beck in all three movies. Yeah. Mysterio.
0: Yes. I am glad we're
1: getting him, though, in Spider Man Far From Home. Oh, yeah. Good timing. I didn't think about that. Free publicity <laughs> from our presumably millions of fans podcast. <laughs> so Peter wins the match because he's
0: freaking Spider Man. And. The wrestling promoter gives him $100 for lasting two minutes. But the ad said 3000 for three minutes. That equivalency is off by quite a large margin.
1: Well, you already pointed out this guy's a huge douche. Oh, absolutely a huge douche. Which makes it okay for him to get robbed. Yeah. But I think weirder than that, and you're a wrestling fan, so you might have an answer for me, but Spider-Man defeats Bonesaw, sure. who's the champion of this wrestling league. Doesn't that mean he has to defend his title or the belt? Yes. Yes, it does. They just dropped that whole subplot. Frankly, great material for a sequel, but they just entirely dropped it.
0: (laughs) Well, to be fair, I'm willing to bet he had no desire to go back.
1: No, sure. Not not with the turn the evening takes after. So the promoter gets robbed. The thief runs away. Spider-Man lets him escape past him instead of stopping him.
0: Right. Everybody's getting mad at Peter. Now, the thief had a gun. And the promoter runs up to Peter, and it's the weirdest line read when he says, Now he's going to get away with my money. Mm-hmm. So Peter gets back out onto the street, and the robber has shot Uncle Ben and has left Uncle Ben bleeding out. I remember this scene being a little longer. It was really jarring to me how quickly it goes that Ben doesn't really have any final
1: words other than to say Peter.
0: I mean, it's it's fine. if I just remembered it differently.
1: I think it would have been sort of out of character for Raimi to have Uncle Ben say anything profound or lengthy at that point.
0: Yeah, profound would have been bad.
1: Like, that would have been a terrible decision. But also, Peter has business to attend to because he hears the police discussing how the mugger who just carjacked Uncle Ben is heading in a certain direction, and Peter decides, even though Uncle Ben's literally dying in his arms, he decides this is the moment he's going to Spider-Man it up and get revenge.
0: Yeah, and he goes after the car. Now, I say the car because this is a 1973 Oldsmobile Delta 88. That is the first car Sam Raimi ever bought brand new. He has kept it restored since he started making money and it has been in every single Sam Raimi movie ever. Yeah. Supposedly even The Quick and the Dead, which is a Western, where he had it stripped down to the chassis and turned into a covered wagon. Sam Raimi does not fuck around. <laughs> and and Bruce
1: Campbell wants to destroy it, but doesn't know where it's kept. Mhm. Although the carjacker in this movie did a decent job just plowing through stuff on the sidewalk and shooting through the roof, trying to hit Spider-Man. But even he could not destroy the car.
0: That car is invincible. Uh, I really liked that after the car crashes and the thief is trying to make his final escape, he sees Spider-Man's shadow up near the ceiling on the wall and he starts shooting at the shadow in terror. He's a bad criminal. Does sort of emphasize that he's a little terrified right now, which is understandable, because there was a guy jumping onto his
1: car. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of Sam Raimi touches, uh, Peter's fighting the guy in the abandoned building that he tracked him down to. And there's this nice little Darkman homage as he slams the guy's head through some windows, because it's shot exactly like how Liam Neeson's face gets smashed through some glass cabinets in Darkman. I didn't notice that.
0: You're right. That's amazing. Ah, oh, I love all these
1: little touches. Like I just said, Sam Airman does not buck around.
0: <laughs> he needs to direct more. Anyways, so Thief falls to his death.
1: Peter's overcome yeah, with Spider-Man guilt. Yeah, Spider-Man definitely killed that guy.
0: <laughs> yes. Um, so Thief is dead. Spider-Man's racked with guilt. And so at this point, Norman Osborn has... So Norman's getting desperate to keep that military contract, so he decided to test the Oz formula on himself, which... In the film takes place right when Peter is passing out. So we go from that Sam Raimi nightmare scene to another Sam Raimi nightmare scene Uh as Norman's getting gassed. Sam Raimi does this thing. He'll start with the camera set already zoomed in and then he'll zoom in further in a quick snap zoom. And here he does it when um, Norman's basically dead. They comes to and his eyes snap open. Mm-hmm. It's a jump scare without feeling like a cheap jump scare. Yeah. So Norman kills his lab assistant, head scientist guy and
1: yeah, he kills Dr. Strom, the scientist who was the naysayer earlier in the movie when the military brass and the board members were giving Norman shit. It's also funny cuz right before he kills the guy, he repeats something that Dr. Strom said earlier when he was naysaying. <laughs> and it's, it's funny, because the fact that he remembers that and then is driven to kill the guy is immediate proof that Dr. Strom was absolutely right about psychosis <laughs> from the Oz formula. Yeah. Very unlucky that Norman Osborn's the one mouse that gets fucked up from the formula. But that's <laughs> yeah. the luck of the draw.
0: So then, skipping ahead to the first appearance of the Green Goblin, At the base for Oscorp's rivals, they have the military brass there and they're showing off an exoskeleton. That exoskeleton looks like garbage.
1: Yeah. Yes. I have a note about that too. So (laughs) earlier when they're at the Oscorp lab and they're telling Norman, oh, you got to do this quick or we're going to give your contract to someone else. They mentioned an exoskeleton that a rival company is working on and This technology is presented in a way that makes it sound way more exciting to the military than the Oscorp glider, but the exoskeleton looks like a piece of shit. It's just a big-ass clunky suit, and the Green Goblin immediately destroys the exoskeleton with one shot. Yeah, absolutely
0: shows off the military superiority of the glider.
1: But even without that, like inherently, the glider makes more sense for military use than, (laughs) than this goddamn exoskeleton. An exoskeleton makes it sound like what Master Chief in Halo is wearing, but it's basically like a giant porta potty with a jetpack. <laughs> and about as mobile as a giant porta potty with a jetpack would be.
0: Yeah. They have the goblin coming in on radar, and the guy in the exoskeleton just sort of has to watch death come at him.
1: Yeah. God. The, the military <laughs> industrial complex, man. They are the real villains of this movie. Just give Norman money for his glider. None of this would have happened.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But they hate Norman for some reason. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So as the goblin is blowing up everything, he blows up the exo-frame and this bunker that all the scientists and the brass are in. Within the explosion, it transitions to Peter's high school graduation with everyone throwing their hats in the air.
1: Yeah, the horror of Uncle Ben's death. You have the horror of the first Green Goblin appearance and uh, it's a nice little turnaround, little balancing act that Raimi does. Yeah. I think one thing Raimi doesn't really get enough credit for is how good he is at blending in emotional beats with his bread and butter of horror in action. Like the high school graduation and then the uh, conversation right after that with Peter and Aunt May at home, it just conveys so much emotion and tenderness uh, within a couple of minutes as they go from the graduation to him and her crying, as they talk about uncle Ben, mm-hmm. um, a lot of movies have to spend much more time getting across half as much emotion uh, with less credibility and finesse than the scenes between Peter and Norman Osborn at the graduation. And then later Peter and his aunt, Ramy handles this so nicely that those scenes kind of feel like they're not in a superhero movie.
0: Fair. Yeah. Good job, Sam. And this is when Peter sucks it up and decides, I am going to be Spider-Man. And we get him in his full classic costume.
1: It looks great. It's suddenly made off screen. It's fine. <laughs> who made it? Who knows? But it looks cool, so who cares?
0: Yeah. And we get some of the first CGI in this movie. As you mentioned before, Sam Raimi is one of those directors who doesn't like to rely on CGI. And CGI during the day, Day, especially composite CGI, which is when you take a CGI character and lay it over live action. Doing that during daylight, it's really hard to look good. Especially in two thousand two. I was about to say, yeah, especially in two thousand two, and it still looks pretty damn good. It's not great, but for two thousand two, it looks really
1: good. Yeah, the visual effects people on this nailed it. Mhm.
0: Yeah. And with Spider-Man swinging around the city, we beat J. Jonah Jameson and goddamn, I could just
1: watch him all day. I can't believe that they waited a full hour to drop him into the movie. <laughs> Cuz he owns the second half of this movie. Um we're also a bit forward in time now, right? It's it's a few months after their graduation at least. Cuz it seems like everyone's settled into life
0: yeah, it does feel like that.
1: Harry and Peter have moved into an apartment together. Mm-hmm. They don't really discuss it in this one, but I think in the second movie they establish that they're both in college. Or yeah. no, they they do mention it because uh, Peter later in the movie mentions that Dr. Connors <laughs> fires him uh, from the job.
0: Yeah, fun little Easter egg, and another Easter egg in J. Jonah Jameson's office. He's there with. Another alliterative, Robbie Robertson.
1: An editor at the Daily Bugle.
0: Yeah, head editor of the paper. And Jameson's barking about wanting pictures of Spider-Man, and Robertson mentions Eddie's been trying and hasn't, which is an unpaid-off Easter egg just because Eddie Brock is fully delivered in Spider-Man 3. Mm -hmm. There's aspects of this movie that blow my mind because it's 2002 this movie reminds me of how long ago that actually was because they sold out four printings of a newspaper.
1: Yeah, I think we definitely brought it up in Superman Returns, which takes place about four years later. But how is print media still in existence in these movies to the degree that it is? Clark Kent returns from a five-year hiatus, immediately rehired. (laughs) Peter Parker shows up at a newspaper where they just sold out four printings. And there's
0: payphones. Mm-hmm it's it's just bizarre what a time um so back to your question about the time that's passed between graduation and where we pick up apparently mj and harry have been dating for a while
1: and peter doesn't know about it yeah yeah huge dick move considering they're basically his only friends
0: and harry even mentions pete i know you've been in love with her forever dude then why ask her out in the first place
1: yeah that's why he kills him in the third movie tracks but harry's also been keeping it a secret from his dad i think he's just a shittier person than we realize in the first movie
0: yeah when we find out that he's been keeping a secret from his dad and that leads to possibly my favorite willem dafoe moment in this movie Harry, to distract from the conversation about his girlfriend, asks his dad, Hey, Peter just lost his job. I'm sure you could help him. And Norman positively lights up at the prospect of being able to just help Peter.
1: Many people want nothing more from a romantic partner than to be looked at the way Norman Osborne looks at Peter <laughs> when Harry asks if he can get Peter a job.
0: Yeah, it is a lovely little moment.
1: Don't know why everybody hates Norman. This is also post insanity Norman. He's still a sweet guy sometimes. Sometimes. Mm hmm.
0: He's so good. So, yeah, Norman offers to help him get a job. And Peter sees the advertisement wanting pictures of Spider Man and decides to take pictures of himself, which results in truly impossible pictures. With Spider-Man posing for them. Yeah. It's weird, but fun just because we get to see Jameson again.
1: Acting completely unimpressed with these amazing photographs.
0: (laughs) And also, there's a great bit where Elizabeth Banks is Betty Brant, Jameson's personal assistant, keeps trying to get Jonah's attention about, I quote, your wife called the tile for the foyer is out. And Jameson, just without missing a beat, just put a rug there. Mm -hmm. Because he is an utter cheapskate. And I want to watch J.K. Simmons and Elizabeth
1: Banks just riff for hours. See, that's one downside of this movie not existing in the current MCU, because you know we would get a spinoff of that. That would be such a great spinoff. At least a Netflix original series spinoff of JJ just running the paper. <laughs> or I guess now it would be the uh, whatever Disney streaming thing is coming out. Rest in peace, Netflix MCU. Yeah. I think it's officially now over, right? With the uh, last season of yes. Jessica Jones out. That's the nail in the coffin of that relationship.
0: Yeah. Um. So
1: the World's Unity Fair... Speaking of resting in peace, (laughs) it's a big festival in Times Square with ethnically offensive parade balloons and uh, Macy Gray concert featuring actually Macy Gray and uh, the first showdown between the Green Goblin and Spider-Man. Yeah. We get our Stanley cameo. Yeah. He's uh, just there in the crowd. No funny lines for him. Saving a little girl. I guess that's better than having a funny line yeah he's also a real hero
0: yes unlike everybody who made no attempt to save that kid from the very slowly falling crane arm
1: with a balloon attached to it yeah so when norman attacks the board members at the world unity fair does he not realize that his son is there i guess he kills the board members he acknowledges mary jane even though he doesn't know who she is yet i guess but either it doesn't see or doesn't care that Harry's there. Wow, I I didn't really catch that. Neither did Norman, apparently.
0: <laughs> I was more focused on the fact that apparently he has a miniature nuclear device.
1: Yeah, he just zaps the board members and everything but their skeletons disappears. Yeah. Which also never gets used again.
0: Yeah. Why not just use that all the time? Yeah. So now we also get our first good clean shot of the goblin costume which was also highly questionable at the time because it looks nothing like your traditional green goblin
1: yeah they they actually made a comics authentic green goblin costume uh, I think before they cast the role and it was like an animatronic green goblin mask but for various reasons they dropped it in favor of this which uh, is fine It's kind of goofy, sinister, instead of just sinister, sinister, but the authentic Green Goblin mask would have probably been even goofier. I think it's just a lose-lose from a design standpoint.
0: Absolutely. Good way to put it. Really,
1: the best one would have been just Willem Dafoe's face, but for (laughs) plot purposes, they couldn't do that. Yeah. So Green Goblin and Spider-Man briefly fight, and then Green Goblin ends up on the ground while Spider-Man's saving people, and the cops confront the Goblin. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was weird uh, the first couple times I saw it because Green Goblin yells, I surrender at the cops before attacking them. But thinking about it now, years later, and many more comics under my belt, I think it was actually a great comic booky touch to have him yell, I surrender before attacking the cops. Mm-hmm. Everything that happens from that point on with him in that scene is just very comic booky. Like he yells, we'll meet again, Spider-Man, as he glides off. It's just so dumb in real life, but very comic book appropriate.
0: <laughs> oh, it's beautiful comic book stuff.
1: I know that Willem Dafoe, um, he has very little respect for these movies in these roles, but he is as utterly invested in them as he is in the more artistic roles that he prefers. And God bless him for that. Yep.
0: Yes. God bless you. Appleton, Wisconsin's own Willem Dafoe.
1: Yeah. I don't know how proud he is of that, but Uh, I think Mary Jane in this movie is a very nice young lady, but she's Mm -hmm. a a terrible girlfriend. (laughs) So the Green Goblin attack, during which her boyfriend is hit in the head uh, with falling debris and knocked out. And then she's Mm -hmm. rescued by Spider-Man. In the aftermath of all that, we see later Peter and Harry are hanging out and uh, Harry's on the phone with Mary Jane, which means that hours later after the incident, she didn't reach out to him or try to find him. And then when he did call her, Mm -hmm. all she does is talk about Spider-Man Instead of asking if he's okay. Yeah. Just not a good girlfriend.
0: <laughs> I'm picturing her on the other side of the phone talking to Harry, but on her notebook in front of her, she's writing, Mr. and Mrs. Spider Man. Yeah. Mrs. Mary Jane Spider Man. Owner, is that a
1: Jewish last name? Spider Man? <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, yes, I'm going to tangent now. My brother has a sketch idea to do a traditional law firm commercial where it'd be something like Jacob's, Jacob's, and Spider-Man, <laughs> where you meet the first two lawyers, and then eventually you cut to Spider-Man just wearing a nice suit as he's talking to clients.
1: They'd probably rack up a lot of business, although you know that firm would constantly be getting attacked. <laughs> well, they have good representation. Sure, but legal, yes, but their insurance company would have grounds to drop them, though.
0: <laughs> uh, so... We transition into the first time Willem Dafoe acts against Willem Dafoe.
1: Yes. Also, weirdly, the first time he realizes that he's the Green Goblin.
0: Yeah, he's in his home, big penthouse home, and he hears laughing, and he hears someone beckoning him, and he's sort of freaking out, and he's drinking heavily, and then he sees himself in the mirror, and he slowly starts to realize what's going on. And it's fantastic because he gets to act without the mask. Yeah.
1: It's also presented in a way where you can't really tell if he's talking to himself in the mirror and being the Green Goblin into the mirror. Or if the mirror version of him Mm -hmm. is just in his own insanity, the Green Goblin talking to him and him outside of the mirror talking to that person inside the mirror.
0: Yeah, super ambiguous. And... He comes to the conclusion that he must either get Spider-Man to help him or kill Spider-Man.
1: Yeah, so then he attacks J.J. Jameson because that newspaper is the only one that is getting clearly taken by Spider-Man. Pictures of (laughs) (laughs) Spider-Man. And then uh, he attacks the office, luckily, while Peter is there. So Peter gets to hop out of the window and be Spider-Man and then gets hit by sleeping gas. Yeah, and when the goblin attacks... J. Jonah Jameson has been being J.
0: Jonah Jameson and just, you know, a cantankerous asshole. Mm-hmm. But when Goblin demands, you know, who sends you the pictures, Jameson immediately just nuts up and just says, I don't know. It's a really strong emotional beat for J. Jonah Jameson to show that... He protects his people. Yeah, he's a and kind of a dick, but he's not going to just sell people
1: out. Right. And then it leads to the single most confusing thing about this movie, which is the goblin abducting Spider-Man and asking him to team up. Yeah, maybe he's lonely, or he knows he'll be lonely, and
0: here's this one other person in the world with abilities. Give him a chance? Team up? Why not?
1: Sure. I mean, it doesn't really track with his psychotic behavior otherwise, but maybe the little bit of humanity in him. I don't know.
0: Yeah. If nothing else, we get More great Willem Dafoe. Because even though he's in this full costume, he is making a lot of really fun physical movement decisions.
1: Yeah, he actually refused to have a stuntman do the Green Goblin stuff because he wanted to get the body language across. The man is dedicated. And perhaps the most interesting thing about that scene is the fact that he doesn't unmask Spider Man. The game is afoot to him, and he doesn't want to spoil it by finding out who Spider Man is.
0: Yeah.
1: I guess it's lucky for Peter that he doesn't get unmasked because trouble would have started a lot sooner for him. But instead, he gets to have a lovely moment after rescuing Mary Jane.
0: Lovely or vastly uncomfortable-looking moment. Because uh, that...
1: won an MTV Movie Award for best kiss. <laughs> so I know. I remember both actors saying it was miserable. The logistics of kissing upside down are. With your noses and the placement. And then you throw in a heavy rain.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Toby McGuire basically had to just keep in nose plugs
1: the whole time, which also meant he had a hard time breathing because he was kissing. Right. Half kissing, half just exhaling into Kirsten Dunn's mouth. (laughs) It's it's just as romantic as it gets. Yeah. Worth it for the MTV best kiss movie awards. Was it? Uh
0: So the next confrontation between Spider-Man and the Green Goblin takes place very shortly after when he's rescuing people from a building on fire. For some reason, his spider sense gives out because the Green Goblin's there.
1: Amazing. I already mentioned Willem Dafoe slash Norman Osborn's comic bookiness. Amazing that he just Mm -hmm. finds a shawl and cries like an old lady <laughs> in a burning building to trick Spider-Man.: Yeah, dedication.
0: Also hats off to more comic booky stuff when Spider-Man says, "It's you who's out, gobby, out of your mind."
1: Yeah. It's so bad, and so delicious at the same time. Stanley was the guest writer on the script for that one line.: <laughs> Spidey manages to get away from the goblin in the burning building, and he gives thanks by transitioning right to Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah, and Norman meeting Mary Jane for the first time officially and yeah, they they're hosting Thanksgiving at Harry and Peter's apartment with Aunt May and Harry and MJ. And Norman gets to start being really creepy. Yeah, he just leers at MJ the whole time.
0: He eyeball scans her and then smiles while he's making full-on eye contact with her,
1: standing maybe a foot away. Smiles is a nice way to put it. He's just leering right at her. Yeah, it is gross. But on the plus side, it's supposed to be. And uh, Peter shows up with a bloody wound on his arm from that fight in the fiery building. Mm-hmm. That is when uh, Norman figures out that Peter's Spider-Man. And the way it's shot and acted is deliciously tense. Yes. It made my skin crawl when you see the look on Willem Dafoe's face, when he sees the wound and he realizes, Oh fuck. As creepy as Willem Dafoe is during this Thanksgiving affair, I thought it was kind of cute and weird that he uh, calls Aunt May, Aunt May. (laughs) Just call her May. Yeah.
0: Her name is Aunt May.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Canonically. Just, this is Aunt May. It's a, might have been a script oversight or something her driver's
0: license says aunt may parker what's wrong with you i got it
1: must be a british thing
0: (laughs) yeah which leads to also the scene of norman osborne finally being alone after coming to this realization and he's back in his home there's a chair sitting in front of a fireplace with the goblin mask helmet thing sitting on it and norman is having an absolute emotional breakdown trying to figure out what to do with this piece of information and talking to the mask he is begging that mask to tell him what to do because this kid who he thinks of as his son is his mortal enemy it's a situation no one can understand cause it's preposterous but he makes us
1: all feel it no one could have pulled off this role other than Willem Defoe. Just going to drop the gauntlet there. Yeah. I'm sure other people could play Norman Osborn pretty well, but uh, the way he's done in this movie, no one else could have done it. Yeah. So
0: the mask tells Norman, go for the heart. As Aunt May is praying, saying the Lord's Prayer, and suddenly the wall blows up and the goblin's there, and apparently he knew what she was doing. Because she's freaking out. And he just screams, Finish it.
1: God damn, the way he just screams that. It's chilling and amazing. Very few people can growl and yell at the same time. And obviously, one of the people in the world who can do it is Willem Dafoe.
0: (laughs) Which leads to Peter realizing that, you know, the
1: goblin knows who he is somehow. Yeah. And then first thought is gonna ditch my aunt at the hospital and call the girl i have a crush on yeah. who at this point is still uh technically dating my best friend yep
0: teenagers <laughs> but she shows up and confesses that she's in love with spider-man and and so aunt may's asleep, and mary jane understandably comes by to see how aunt may is doing and also see how peter's right. doing and Mary Jane confesses, you know, hey, I'm in love with Spider-Man, even though I've seen him twice. And Peter takes the moment to say, basically, hey, I know you love Spider-Man, but I love you, and I've always loved you, and here's why.
1: Yeah. And
0: she reaches over to take Peter's hand, and then Harry walks in, and it's like they're
1: holding hands. His aunt is in the bed unconscious. But I do think that was just them being teenagers with, like, all of the coaster of emotions there. I didn't think that was like a disingenuous reaction. Harry's? Yeah. I thought that like, obviously he doesn't take it well, but what 19 year old who's in a weird situation with his girlfriend where he feels like she's not giving back what he's putting into it would not react poorly to that. I just thought it was an overreaction even for teenagers. You're 40. What do you know about teenagers? Okay. I'll concede that one. Dick. It's okay. I'm, (laughs) 30. I don't know what teenagers are up to. (laughs) And then that's when a series of events quickly unfold. Yeah. Harry gets home and tells Norman, uh, I think it's over with MJ. I I realize she loves Peter, to which Norman very creepily pretends to comfort his son, but you can see the wheel spinning in his head of, like, I know who I'm going to attack next. Yeah, and he does. In the creepiest revelation, when Peter calls MJ and realizing, oh, people I love are getting attacked. And uh, it's her voicemail. And he starts talking into the voicemail because kids, back in the day, when you left a voicemail, people could hear you leaving it and answer if they wanted to. Yep. Um, So Green Goblin picks up the phone and says, can Spider-Man come out to play? Ooh, Uh,
0: creepy. So Spider-Man does come out to play and discovers the Green
1: Goblin on top of the brooklyn bridge with gwen stacy precariously perched atop (laughs) sorry i I have read a few marvel comics in my life
0: (laughs) yeah now it's disappointing because the setup is great hey i have these two things the woman you love or i have this cable car full of children
1: you can only save one who would green goblin have taken hostage if it wasn't for that (laughs) <laughs> very unfortunate cable car full of kids going around Manhattan in the middle of the night. Yeah. But yeah, like you said, he's waiting there at the bridge for Spider-Man to arrive and presents it to him as, Hey, you think you're a hero. Guess what? Heroes have to make tough decisions. Are you going to save the girl you love? Or are you going to save this cable car full of kids I found? And then Goblin just drops them both at the same time.
0: And after a very well done shot of Spider-Man's face, where in one of his eye lenses we see Mary Jane starting to fall, and in the other one we see the cable car starting to fall. He leaps and saves both of them very easily. It is super anticlimactic.
1: I think the Green Goblin really underestimated how powerful superhero movie protagonists are. (laughs) Yeah, But yeah, that, that scene, or the shot where you're seeing them both fall, each reflected in one of his eye lenses... That was the most comic booky shot in the entire movie. I like that shot a lot.
0: Yes. I'm nodding exuberantly.
1: uh, this format occasionally has its limitations. Yeah. But um yeah, he he drops them both and Spider Man immediately saves them both. Granted he Problem then solved. has to like dangle from the bridge and try to balance them and complete the saving of them as a uh very fortunately timed barge starts going under the bridge.
0: Yeah, and it helped build the tension back up from how anticlimactic the fall was in the first place. Yeah. And I always get a kick out of false New York camaraderie in movies.
1: Yeah, all of a sudden the bridge is swarmed with New Yorkers saying shit like, Yeah, you leave Spider-Man alone. You take on one of us. You take on all of us.
0: Green Goblin's a New Yorker, too. That's all I got to say. He's
1: more of an authentic New Yorker than Peter Parker. Just a (laughs) monomaniacal asshole. (laughs) Sorry, my New Jersey bias is showing.
0: Nope, it's fair. My sister-in-law's a Jersey girl. I get it.
1: I think from the point where we open on the bridge and Mary Jane is being held hostage by the Goblin um, to the end of that fight when Peter and the Green Goblin uh, conclude their fight, I think that's 11 minutes total. And I gotta say, it's a breath of fresh air and I'm saying this about a 17-year-old movie, um, but it's a breath of fresh air to have a superhero movie finale be like a 10-minute compelling showdown instead of a half-hour blur of CGI and explosions.
0: Yeah, and relatively small stakes. Yeah. Very personal No saving stakes. the
1: world. Like, I don't think those kids would have died even if the cable car hit the water, frankly. <laughs> um, I'm glad we didn't have to find out. But yeah, the stakes True. were pretty straightforward.
0: Yeah. And... That whole last fight scene after the Goblin lassoes Spider-Man and flies him across the bay and into an abandoned building of some sort, that whole fight scene is beautifully a Sam Raimi shot fight. You have these... I know this is going to sound like a backhanded compliment, but I do not mean it that way at all. But these great flat shots where the camera's like locked down hard for fractions of a second... But it's very Sam Raimi
1: and everything about it. The editing, the framing, just beautiful. Also the pacing of the fight. Uh, so the green goblin throws him into the building. And then as Spider-Man's about to recover, the goblin throws a bomb at him and Spider-Man's just too shaken to really react. Um, like half of his mask gets blown off and mm-hmm. on top of all of the damage from being thrown into a building and the, the bomb just takes the piss out of him. And He's doing his best to keep up with the Goblin, but the Goblin's just easily getting past his blocks and just wrecking him in their most brutal and unsuperpowered fight to this point. They're they're basically just boxing, and Mm Spider-Man's on the ropes. He can't even have a moment to compose himself as Norman just wails Uh on him.
0: Until he does get a breath because Norman decides to stop and monologue. Ah, yes. Every villain's downfall. Yep. Threaten Mary Jane, Spider-Man gets pissed, and he drops a
1: wall onto the goblin. Do what you will to the guy, but do not mention Mary Jane when you're trying to kill him. <laughs> That's his Popeye spinach moment.
0: And Norman crawls out and starts begging for mercy and takes off his helmet to show, like, hey, it's me. But now that I watch it, I am positive he is no longer Norman. He is 100% goblin and just pretending to be Norman to get Peter to lower his guard.
1: Well, I disagree because after he gets stabbed by his own glider, I think that moment he's Norman again right before he dies. So Norman's part of Norman's still in there. Yes.
0: And to this day, I think it's funny that as soon as the glider hits him, Norman's face just going, oh, It's definitely stabbing him in the crotch.
1: Uh, I'll go with pelvis, since this is a family-friendly podcast. (laughs) Is it? I don't know. It's obviously
0: done so that he can lay forward across the glider easily. Sure. And that leads to Norman's last words of, don't tell Harry. Why would Peter grant that request?
1: Uh, because Norman's been kind to him, and Harry's his best friend, and... Uh, and he does grant the request. The Green Goblin has murdered a lot of people.
0: He's just gone. All of those murder cases are still wide open. Families left with no answers for what happened to their loved ones. Tons of property damage. I guarantee there's an FBI file open and just... That's gonna be there forever. And how does that help? With great power comes great responsibility. No, responsibility is turning
1: this man in, but... It's his best friend's dad, and now his best friend's orphaned, and Peter can relate, as he mentions at the funeral. Yeah, it's fine. This is me being snarky. Either way, he grants the request. He's a good friend, if not the most responsible hero. And then we get another breath of fresh air, in addition to the short showdown, in that we get such a mixed emotional ending. Mm -hmm. They're at the funeral for Norman, who as far as everyone knows, was killed by Spider-Man, even though he's got glider blade stab wounds in his pelvis. Was there no investigation? Apparently not. Harry also clearly didn't tell the police, like, oh, Spider-Man killed my dad, because there's no APB out on Spider-Man for this. It's just a weird conclusion. (laughs) It's a mixed emotional ending in the sense that Peter does finally get the girl. But one, he gets the girl while they're both, like, in tears at the funeral of their friend's father. And two, he gets the girl and at that moment realizes, oh, wait, I'm Spider-Man. I can't get the girl, which, granted, is after the scare of nearly losing her, but still, he just rejects her and decides to take up the mantle of Spider-Man full-time. And these teenagers, who are all on a roller coaster of Mm -hmm. emotions and conflicted feelings about their weird little love triangle for so long in this movie, I just thought it was an interesting choice for Raimi and the writer David Cupp to have that ending and kind of take the harder way out as far as... Uh, quote-unquote happy endings are concerned because it is otherwise a happy ending.
0: Yeah, it's a good wrap-up. A lot of movie comic book logic to just get to that point, mm-hmm. and that's fine. Also, again, it's 2002. This is the third Marvel Studios movie before it was solely Marvel Studios.
1: After Howard the Duck and X-Men? <laughs> meant Blade and X-Men, but... Ah, so the fourth one. How dare you leave out Howard the Duck? Apologies. (laughs) Anyway, funeral. Yeah. Harry tells Peter, Spider-Man killed my dad, and I swear on his grave I'll have revenge. And Peter, being an above-and-beyond good friend, just keeps his mouth shut. Folks, listen to Snark Nights episode 17 for more on how these people are still dumb two movies later. But Mary Jane gets better. Because in
0: this movie, so we're at the end and she's confessing, oh, hey, I'm in love with you, Peter. Which feels a little male fantasy because... How did they get to that point? Exactly. As much as I do really like this movie, Mary Jane's journey is really flat.
1: She's just 100% damsel in distress. Yeah, that doesn't help. Serves as an emotional foil for the boys.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We understand why Peter's been crazy about her because he's always been crazy about her. Yeah. But here's her journey in regards to him. They've been neighbors since they were six. And while Mary Jane was always friendly to Peter, as we discussed, they clearly weren't actually friends. And in high school, she was dating the bully who was constantly picking up Peter. She breaks up with him and starts dating Peter's best friend. And Peter and MJ bump into each other a couple times on the street. A ways down the road from that, she falls in love with Spider-Man. Peter has one moment where he cryptically tells her, I love you and I've always loved you. And because of that one moment, when Mary Jane has a near-death experience she realizes she's in love with Peter. That
1: is not an emotional journey. It comes off kind of dumb when you watch the movie, but then, yeah, hearing you summarize it like that makes it feel even (laughs) worse.
0: Yeah, it's just really flat.
1: It's better in the next movie.
0: Radically better in the next movie. It seems to rely on... We, as an audience, know that Peter and Mary Jane are going to be together. So Mm -hmm. it feels like this entire movie took a shortcut with their relationship because we knew where it was going to end. Sure. And that might have also been because 2002, this is the first big Spider-Man movie. The studio's holding on. Everybody's still trying to figure out how
1: to do these superhero movies. It could have been all of that. Mm -hmm. It's also a good point. Like, they didn't really know what they were doing with these movies because... This and X-Men were kind of like the beginning of the modern superhero era. And mm-hmm. both of them had love triangles now that I'm thinking about it, where hey. both movies did a just a bad job of having compelling female character make decisions for herself in a way that was anything beyond like, she is the love interest of these people and behaving like a fully formed human being, as opposed to like, we know she's going to be in love with this guy at the end of the movie. <laughs> Folks, listen to Snark Knight's episode 18 to hear more about the Weird Love Triangle <laughs> in X-Men.
0: Yeah. But
1: I do like this movie. Any other thoughts for the movie before we get into our favorite thing and fix this movie? As of now, we've done a lot of talking about Willem Dafoe. Um, and probably will do more. We should talk about Tobey Maguire a little bit. We've thoroughly applauded the supporting actors, but yeah, lest, lest we forget, this movie's called Spider-Man. Starring Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man.
0: Yeah. Yeah, he does a good job. He's not unapproachable. He's not unattractive. He does a good job of just being an average Joe who's really, really smart. And that's what Peter Parker is supposed to be.
1: Yeah. And I think something that kind of goes by the wayside in Tobey Maguire's career, at least if you're just casually thinking about it, is I think you mentioned he's 27 when he took this role or, or when this movie came out. So he's in his mid-20s when he got the role, but he's a pretty experienced actor at this point, despite his age. Like, he'd been acting for uh, about a decade at that point, comedic stuff and dramatic stuff, and his range is just really evident as Peter Parker. Like, lighthearted, quipping at Bonesaw and Green Goblin, or uh, when he's traumatized, dealing with Uncle Ben's death, or scared and excited about his transformation. The movie would have fallen flat if Toby Maguire couldn't deliver all of those different reactions. But the movie's a blast, and his enthusiasm is evident the whole time it's just a yeah. fun hero's journey to follow because his excitement's palpable and he's like a blank slate in a way sometimes like we can project ourselves on him and his trials mm-hmm. and tribulations but um then other times he's a very well-established character when he's dealing with his friends and his family um before and after he gets his powers so that's off to toby yeah good job toby sorry we're not talking about you more but willem dafoe willem dafoe I think we also, in our Spider-Man 3 episode, we kind of talked about how, even in the low points of the franchise, he just gives it his all. Oh, yeah. And being the face of the biggest comic book movie franchise ever, until the MCU really took off, it's a lot of responsibility. I'm not going to make a joke about power and responsibility, but it definitely affected his career, and not for the better. Like He still works, but um, at this point, he's mostly producing and not really acting as much. I don't really know how his relationship is with Spider-Man after the fact, but... Yeah, I don't. I don't think this fan franchise would have worked without someone of his ability as Spider-Man. Yeah. Good movie. Enjoyed it.
0: Problems, sure, but that'll happen.
1: That was a good TLDR summary of the movie. <laughs> my um, my only other note is I just wanted to applaud. I mean, we we have been applauding throughout this whole thing, Sam Raimi, but um, hats off to David Cup, the screenwriter, because. Considering the pressure that him and Raimi must have had going into this, and um, I'm assuming some studio interference because it's a huge budget Mm -hmm. blockbuster, um, these guys just told a great, perfectly paced-out story, like to the point where it's textbook. The first act ends with Uncle Ben's death and Peter fully becoming Spider-Man. The climax of the film is Mm -hmm. the World Unity Fair where Spider-Man and Green Goblin face off for the first time. Uh, The second act ends with the conversation between Goblin and Spidey, where Goblin asks Spidey to join him, and then the upside-down kiss between Mary Jane and Peter. And the third act ends with, as we just talked about, that sort of mixed emotional ending uh, that results in Spider-Man full-on becoming the hero that we know and love. Yep. Every beat was meticulously planned out, and it all flows so perfectly from start to finish that even the one really odd thing about this movie, the development of Mary Jane as a character, just doesn't really feel that off because everything else around it comes off so well.
0: Yeah, no wasted moments, no lulls that aren't planned to be a lull. Right.
1: What's your favorite thing about this movie?
0: It should come as no surprise that it is Willem Dafoe. (laughs) Sure, yeah. His character not only goes on a journey in this movie but he's taking us along for the ride with him. The subtle little things where he smiles when he has the chance to help Peter find a job to him very unsubtly eyeballing MJ and the physicality when he's giving the team-up pitch to Peter. He vacillates wildly between existing in the scene to outright chewing it like a delicious meal. Mm -hmm. He is spectacular in this movie.
1: Definitely hypnotic. So what is your favorite thing? I kind of wish I had yours now. (laughs) Uh, No, mine's a little more broad. Um, I saw this in theaters when I was 12 and I hadn't seen any other superhero movies at that point in my life, though I was a big fan of the Bruce, Timm and co DC animated series that had been on, tv since i was a kid and at that point i think we were in justice league unlimited era so that being my first superhero movie in and of itself there was a there's a lot of excitement there and the fact that it was this movie and the fact that i was 12 Hmm. it was just like kiss met there was a sense of wonderment and thrill and joy and seeing the spectacle and the fantasy unfold before me and it must have been what it was like to be 12 in 1978 and see richard donner's superman in theaters it's just like the best age to see something like this. And that sense mm-hmm. of wonderment is still with me to this day when I rewatch this movie. And obviously part of that is member nostalgia brain. But uh, I think that this movie just nails every facet of what it's going for. Like it's just from start to finish, it's firing on all cylinders. And part of the enjoyment that I have watching the movie today is some, like I said, some of it comes from nostalgia, but some of it also just comes solely from the quality and the energy uh, of the film. And it's just so effortless and charming that I can't sit here and name a single favorite thing without Hmm. two or three other just popping into my head. So uh, it's kind of a cop out. But my favorite thing about this movie is just the whole movie. Superman made us believe that a man could fly and Spider-Man made me believe that a teen could swing. (laughs)
0: Beautifully said.
1: Well, nothing is perfect, though. So how would you fix this movie?
0: You would think I would go into, you know, make Mary Jane more of a real person. And in addition to that, even when I first saw this movie and didn't realize that was a problem, the thing that bothered me,
1: Spider-Man's
0: formative years should take place in high school.
1: Ah, oh, okay.
0: I get that they didn't want to do that because it would take a lot of suspension of disbelief to follow Tobey Maguire, who was 27 at the time, through high school which is why you know they had one scene in high school and then had him move out of that too if you but can't the field trip could have been a college field trip they were um, definitely in high school but ultimately high school years are the years that we as humans learn a lot about life yeah we keep learning after high school as we talk about a lot i'm old i'm still learning you do not stop learning. And if you think you could stop learning, you're an idiot. But if you look at like the early years of Spider Man comics, or there was an animated series called The Spectacular Spider Man, which was the showrunner head writer was a guy named Greg Wiseman, who was the showrunner creator of Gargoyles and Young Justice for DC. Wow, what a resume! Yeah. It takes place in high school because that's when Spider-Man needs to be Spider-Man. He needs to be a kid struggling with all of these adult things that he can be this kid saving a city and living by this ethos of with great power comes great responsibility while trying to actually juggle these adult responsibilities. And I get why they had Peter just be an adult it's fine for this movie. It's a good movie. We've mentioned several times. 2002, it's the beginning of them getting a handle on how to do these movies. So it's fine. But if I could go back with hindsight, I'd put Peter in high school like they're doing now. Sure. So at least we're getting it now.
1: But that is how I would fix this movie. Okay. How's about you? Don't wait a full hour to introduce J.K. Simmons as J.J. Jameson. <laughs> Make him the main character? I don't know. My fix this movie is that I think, I guess it's a little similar to yours in a sort of different direction, but um, I think Peter too easily becomes full-fledged Spider-Man. And I get that the structure of this movie with the Green Goblin villainy especially means that uh, that was necessary, but Peter goes from fighting Bonesaw in his homemade little costume to fully being Spider-Man, comic-accurate costume and all, within 20 minutes. And I think it could have benefited from some like Batman year one type shit where we see him develop from a well-intentioned, but inexperienced and awkward developing vigilante into the competent, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man that in this movie, he just suddenly becomes after graduating high school and deciding this is what I am now. Mm. I get why they did what they did and it works, but I feel like the character Spider-Man part of the appeal is that he's this young goofy kid figuring all this stuff out as he goes and having to carry a heavy burden of being a superhero, losing his uncle, having to grow up faster than he otherwise would. So, not that this movie's broken or lesser necessarily because of how they did it, but right. um, I think it would have been a nice touch. And we have to have a fix this movie, even though it might not necessarily, quote unquote, fix the movie. Yeah. Uh, so, that would be mine. Right. Also, now that just maybe want to reread Batman Year One, unrelated. <laughs> yeah, it's good. So, John, start taking us home. I can't, because I'm far from home. Sorry. (laughs) We just want to thank Catherine over at Lone Shoe Graphics for designing our logo. If you need any graphic design work done, look her up. And uh, if you have any suggestions for my lyrics uh, when we do Spider-Man 2 or Spider-Man Homecoming for my short synopsis, send us an email at snarkknightspod at gmail.com. And if you love Willem Defoe as much as we do and want to gush about him, Let us know on Twitter at SnarknightsPod. And uh, this is episode 29. And for those of you who've been listening for uh, at least nine episodes (laughs) prior to this, you know that every 10th episode, we do a little something different. There's no pulling the name of a movie out of a hat. Instead, we go to our... I don't think we really have a name for it, but it's our alternative list of either non-theatrical release superhero stuff or comic book things or not necessarily based on a comic book, but inspired by them or something. Um, so we like to do a little something different for every 10th episode. Yeah. Originally, we did Darkman, and for
0: episode 20, my friend Kristen picked The Shadow. So for episode 30, I was thinking we would do something just a little different. So we went over our list, and what we came up with was...
1: <laughs> Yo, <yes. laughs> Ice to meet you, Snark Knights. Cool party. The Iceman cometh. I have a riddle for you. What killed the dinosaurs? The Ice Age. The dulcet tones of the shuffling hat are the dinosaur in this riddle. Unless the podcast bows to my demands, it is winter forever here. I will turn the podcast into an icy graveyard. That is, unless you watch Batman and Mr. Freeze Sub-Zero, let's kick some ice. And remember, always winterize your pipes. Oh my god. Whoa. Did did we piss off Mr. Freeze at some point? Maybe? I mean, we haven't even recorded our Batman and Robin episode yet. I didn't think we'd be on his radar, but I... Guess at least one of us crossed him at some point. Probably you, because you live in a much colder place. This is very true. Shouldn't have shoveled your driveway or salted your sidewalk. He's mad at all that salt that I had to put down when we legitimately had an ice storm. Damn it. Well, I guess if we want this podcast back, we have no choice. Yeah, to be fair, he could have just asked nicely. I would happily watch Batman
0: Sub-Zero again. Well, I mean, now we have no choice. So I guess join us next time for our 30th episode. And until then, I apologize for nothing. Uh, Except to Mr. Freeze. Except to Mr. Freeze.